everyone, welcome to Journey to the Stage with Brian Frazier, and a special welcome to all of our listeners across Europe, and to everyone who has made Journey to the Stage a regular part of their podcast listening. I'm so grateful that you found us, and extend a big thank you to you. Malcolm Guy is the first poet that I've had as a guest, and he's so much more than a poet, and it really was an honor for me to have such an extensive and wide-ranging conversation with him. This is part two of that conversation. If you haven't heard part one, I'd highly suggest you listen to that one first. For those of you who have heard, you know how special it was when Malcolm read From the Fellowship of the Ring. I made a special video of that portion of our chat and put it up on my YouTube channel. You can click on that link below if you'd like to check that out. Before we jump back into our conversation, if you're interested in supporting the work of this podcast, please give a kind rating or review or follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. Doing those things really are such a huge help for an indie podcaster like myself. So thanks for doing that. So after a fascinating chat about Tolkien, I asked Malcolm what he thought about the movie adaptations. I was very curious to see what he would say about that. We've got a lot more ahead, but that's where we're going to pick up our conversation. So let's listen in. As somebody who is such a, a proponent for words and the representation of ideas in the written form, storytelling, word selection, how did you view the films? I'm so curious as somebody who is, I would say, a, a purist, if, if, there, if there ever was yeah. one, of, of the writings of Tolkien. What was your interpretation or what was your reaction to, to the movies? I have to say I... I went in, you know, kind of with a certain amount of suspicion. I have to say I really loved the first of the Peter Jackson films. I thought they did Hobbiton brilliantly. And it, now this was partly because I think he had taken on both um, John Howe and Alan Lee, who were the two of the greatest illustrators of Tolkien. And I used to get the Tolkien calendars from way back when. And as soon as there was an edition available with Alan Lee or John Howe's illustrations, I, I had those long before the films were thought of. So in a sense, my imagination about these things had partly been informed by their beautiful illustrations. And since Jackson himself took so many cues from them, I think I wasn't disappointed with the shaping of the film. I could have spent and the first hour, I could, I would have just been happy wandering around the Shire and, you know, and Bilbo, uh, Bilbo's own Hobbit hole for the first, you know, I could have just done an hour of that, you know, it wasn't long enough for me. But... Um, as the films progressed on, I thought he became slightly more obsessed with the kind of battles. Now, the battles are really important, but I think he kind of got CGI sort of carried away a bit and kind of endless rows of exactly the same elves drawing a bow at the same time sort of thing. Right, was. Right. I think the balance was lost a little bit towards the end. And I thought the ludicrous idea of doing The Hobbit, which is a light children's tale, as a three-film epic was, was yeah. ludicrous and, and, and grotesque. Um, also, I felt that by that time it had, been, it had actually been corrupted by its own aftermarket, as it were. I felt that half the sequences in it were really to do with computer games, you know, when they sort of go down a great slide, you know, in the underground. Um, right. So I, I, I remember somebody did a really good meme you may remember there's a conversation uh, between Bilbo and Gandalf where Gandalf is delicately trying to find out 
what sort of effect the ring has had on Bilbo. And Bilbo says, I, I feel thin and stretched like butter that's been spread over too much bread. Yes. And somebody took that moment and they redid the caption where Bilbo is saying to Gandalf, I feel sort of thin and stretched like a modest children's book that's been scraped thinly over three epic films. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I thought that just about hit the nail on the head. Well, in, in probably like you, I've read that, and I don't know if it's true or not, but that the film company approached Peter Jackson to make the movies and basically said, if you don't direct them, we'll hire somebody else to direct them. But we want to make them three movies, which probably to Peter Jackson did not seem like a wonderful idea, but he figured he would better direct them than somebody else. He had helped to visually create the worlds in the, in the film, obviously taking his cues from the books. It, when people become really great at the thing they do, there is always at that height and arc of their career a peril. Yeah. And the peril arises from the fact that nobody dares criticize them or suggest anything different. You know, that happened to J.K. Rowling. I think, you know, the first Harry Potter books were much better than the last ones. And the last ones, although they had many good things in them, they were basically too long. They just needed editing. But nobody could say to J.K. Rowling, I think you should cut this paragraph. You know, they just, and she didn't, you know, say it to herself. So I think that's partly what we went on. But I can understand Peter Jackson being put in a fix. But I think if I'd been him, I hope I would have had the strength of mind to say, well, if somebody else does it, you know, I'll tear it to shreds in the reviews, but I'm not putting my name to it. Well, in the irony that, you know, they split it into three films, adding so much. You talk about battles, how many battles they made that were nowhere referenced in, in the books. Some of that material is taken out of, you know, appendixes and bits and pieces from talking, but it was all... And also, I think his efforts at comedy... I mean, his efforts at comedy sort of with kind of back chat between Gimli and Legolas and so on, kind of, and, and it sort of worked. But by the time, I mean, his portrayal of Radagast the Brown is absolutely appalling with these yeah. sort of bunny rabbits, you know. I mean, it's just parody. And actually, yeah. Radagast the Brown is probably the figure we, we need to know most about ecologically. And he ought to be at least as dignified as Gandalf, not, not as he was portrayed in those films. Right. And I remember when I heard the films were going to be made, I thought, wow, how in the world are they going to have portrayed Tom Bombadil? I thought that's going to be interesting to see how they They could portray that with. Yeah. So they probably were couldn't figure out how to portray him without, you know. No, no. I mean, I think it's just as well they didn't try. Um, But anyway, I I, I think the films are fine, but um, as to The Hobbit, I think I saw one brilliant review which simply said, having seen the film, I can thoroughly recommend the book. <laughs> that, generally speaking, is the case. Now, in terms of your own work, you've often written in the sonnet form. You write in prose, in, in rhyming form. Do you find freedom in rhyme? Do you find it to be uh, somewhat fettering? No, no, I find it, I find freedom in it, partly because I get pleasure in it, but partly because freedom, if freedom is related to choice and acting deliberately and thoughtfully rather than on some impulse that you've never questioned, the point about using form with meter and rhyme is that you can't actually write the first thing that comes into your head. 
you have to think about how to phrase it in order to keep the music going. And in that very second thought, where you end up thinking more deeply about what it is you really want to say. Mm. So there's that. And then there is the pleasure. There's simply the pleasure of the rhyme itself, which is which is beautiful. I mean, um, the old Renaissance writers about poetry and people like Philip Sidney used to say that um, poetry must delight and instruct. And I think we've lost the delight, and we've probably lost the instruct as well. But uh, you oh, know, true. it should be should give you something worthwhile, and it should give it to you in a very beautiful form. So I actually get pleasure from the form. I have to say, I chose. I, I'm particularly associated with the sonnet form, and well, you would probably have noticed even in the course of this conversation that by nature, I'm not at a loss for words, and I have a tendency to go on a bit. You know, my mother used to say two things to me. She used to say, "You've got the gift of the gab, very galloping," but she also used to say, "Your tongue will get you hung." Anyway, <laughs> I realised that if I was to write well. I needed a form that constrained me, that concentrated me, that made me get to the point that said to me, Malcolm, you've only got 14 lines. You better make every one of them count. And sometimes I get a really good line coming into my mind and I think, oh, I'll write a sonnet. And I can't, it's not generating anything else because I've mistakenly thought that the line that came to me was the first line of the poem. Sometimes I discover that the line that came to me was the last line of the poem and that I'm writing towards it to try and find what it is that's good about this line, you know, and show it in the poem. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I started writing these sonnets um, that became the book Sounding the Seasons, which goes through the church liturgical year and relates to the different readings for the year. And I was taking the, I was about, I've been serving this particular church in Cambridge for about two years by then. And I, the early morning service, uh, the, the eight o'clock, prayer book, Book of Common Prayer communion service. It's meant to have a fairly short homily, and I'd been giving these homilies. So at a certain point, I decided, why don't I just read the sonnet? So I, for this homily, I started reading these sonnets, just read the sonnet and stand up. And I remember uh, one of the church wardens coming up to me afterwards and putting his arm around my shoulder, and he said, Malcolm, he said, why didn't you tell us when you first came that you could do it in just 14 lines? You know, <laughs> I could have saved them all a lot of long sermons. So, yeah, I like the brevity of the sonnet. <laughs> Although I have to say now I've gone the other way. I'm now writing a, a, a cycle of ballads about, about the Holy Grail and Arthur and the Round Table. So I'm, I'm actually writing at length now. Well, the sonnet, I yeah. would imagine, it requires a, a great deal of discipline. Once you break the form, it's no longer a sonnet. It does, yeah. And I write sonnets in fairly fully... I mean, usually Shakespearean, but one of the early sonnet forms. So the, there's not just that there's 14 lines. It's the 14 lines of iambic pentameter. So right. so the iamb is the rhythm, but um. So you have five of those, but um, but um, but um, but um, but um. That's it's, it's like a heartbeat. So you've got to have the, the right number of stresses in every line, and then you've got to have the rhyme, and then you've got to finish the thing in 14 lines. So it takes a lot of time and mm-hmm. trial and craft to learn it. And I began trying to write sonnets when I was 16. And I didn't publish any in a book form until I was 50. So it was a long apprenticeship. I would say so. (laughs) Most people don't stick with something that long, but it's wonderful that you have. And I I have found you to be a very gifted storyteller. I, I love to read in every corner sings, you know, some of these things from the poet's corner that, uh, that you've written these wonderful, wonderful little stories. Yes, I like that. That's almost like a prose song. Just little, little. There are only five or six hundred words, and 
and they're in prose, but they often include a poem. I'm glad you like that. There's two collections. I'm literally just about, literally at the end of this month, a third volume of those little essays and poems really? is coming out called um, Sounding Heaven and Earth. Oh, okay, wonderful. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Yeah, you've got in every corner. I think there's the first four in every corner sing and Heaven in Ordinary. So there's a third one coming out end of this month i do have the first so i have several of your books on my shelf that i haven't read yet I, i'm trying not necessarily read them in order but uh working my way through some of your i think i have five or six of your volumes up on my shelf now if there was a piece that you would share with people who maybe are unfamiliar with your work what would you choose is there something in your own work that you could maybe spend a moment and give us a reading from yeah, I think if I, I would read you one of my sonnets. I think I might read the sonnet called O Sapientia, which means O Wisdom. Oh, okay. And um, it's the first of a sequence of seven on what were called the O Antiphons. There was these very beautiful fifth century prayers. It, it's very interesting. It, it refers to Christ as wisdom. It says, O Wisdom, the original prose, Latin prayer, says, O Wisdom coming out of the mouth of the Most High, running from one end of the universe to the other, sweetly ordering all things. So it's, wisdom here means the underlying pattern of everything, but it's the idea of God speaking us into being. But this sonnet came, and it really, I think it was very helpful because as a poet, you think about, I'm writing things, I'm making forms, I'm speaking them out. But I believe, following Coleridge and Augustine and others, that we ourselves are being spoken into being by God, that he, we are his poems. I actually wrote this on the day I came back from a, the memorial service of a good friend of mine who, who died, unfortunately, young from a brain tumour. And indeed, I, I took him his last rites. And on the last day I saw him alive, we were discussing poetry together and discussing wow. how our lives might be poems. And he said to me, um, you know, he knew he was dying and he was making everything right with everybody before he went. And he said, um, you know, I always thought I was going to be an epic. It turns out I'm a sonnet, wow. which was brilliant. You know, he understood his form. He was moving towards his last line and making it as good as he possibly could. Wow. And that probably influenced me in writing this poem. But I think this is probably, if I was just introducing to my pe people to my work, I'd read them this, which is called O Sapientia. So here's the poem. I cannot think unless I have been thought, nor can I speak unless I have been spoken. I cannot teach except as I am taught, or break the bread except as I am broken. O mind behind the mind through which I seek, O light within the light by which I see, O word, beneath the words with which I speak, O founding unfound wisdom, finding me, O sounding song, whose depth is sounding me, O memory of time, reminding me, my ground of being, always grounding me, my maker's bounding line, defining me, come, hidden wisdom come with all you bring come to me now disguised as everything wow that's beautiful what a verse thank you for sharing that curious about want to briefly touch on your 
your time spent as a musician. You're you're a musician. You're a songwriter. When it comes to writing lyrics, there really is no distinction between writing lyrics or writing poetry. It's all the same. It's it's words. It's telling a story. Do you find that in the period when you're writing a song, do you feel the same? Do you hear the same muse? Is it a little bit different as you're writing a song as opposed to a poem? Uh, there's a very good question. And of course, there's an obvious similarity that they're both trying to make a beautiful shape with words. But there is a difference for me. It's easier in some ways for me to write a song than it is to write a poem. Because mm. in a sense, the song is assisted by the tune. And I usually compose a song, or at least the first verse or two of it, with a guitar in my hand, trying out melody notes, you know, playing through the chord changes, seeing what melodies are implicit in those, floating my words onto that. And the form the verse form, if you like, is at least found partly by the music. And what that means is that the words of a song are assisted all the time and partly influenced in their meaning and inflection by the music to which they're sung. Whereas a poem has to carry all its own music with it. I have to make the poem, if you like, paradoxically, the line of the poem has to be more intrinsically musical in itself than the line of the song. And, of course, the line of the song can be stretched or shrunk. I mean, Dylan is a master of this, you know. Um, you know, he can spend ages on the word feel when he sings, how does it feel to be on your own? And then in the same time that it took him to the sing the word feel, he can sing about six words in the next line, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he's got a huge flexibility there. So I, did, I find it easier, actually, to write songs. I mean, I began writing songs. I, actually, I loved the blues, and I, I used to run an acoustic blues night in a pub in Grantchester, and gradually um, other musicians kept coming regularly. So it sort of became a house band. And then eventually the... Um, the landlord of the pub let us plug in. So it became a sort of electric blues band as well as acoustic. And then I began to think, well, why don't I write some of these, you know? And then we expanded the repertoire. So we covered, you know, Dylan and Neil Young and Van Morrison and so on. And then I thought, well, why don't, why don't I write some songs that would fit in amongst those? So I began writing out of that. And um, I've done some, I've to put a, I've got an album with my band. I think it's on all the you know, iTunes and Spotify, I think, called Let It Roll. The band's called Mystery Train. And I have a couple of solo albums, solo in inverted commas, and various members of the band are still on it, you know. Sure, I've got sure. one called The Green Man and other songs and another one called um, Dancing Through the Fire. But in fact, you know, because I've moved and the guitarist, the band is hardly, you know, we get together about once or twice a year when somebody really wants us to do it. But we have to travel from all parts of England to get together, so it doesn't happen very often. And it was always sure. a bit of a bar band, you know, we were all, we were all kind of, it was, it was dad rock, you know, I mean, we were all, now it's granddad <laughs> rock, you know, we've been together for 20 years. But um, I still do, I still do a little bit of singer-songwritering, and I've been discovered, to my delight, that actually, you know, I'm better known as a poet than anything else, and the poetry's, you know, far outsold the music, whatever. But I've discovered that if I'm doing a poetry reading, if I bring along a guitar and just two, two or three songs in that, that works really well, and the poetry audience like it. And I can tell you, it's a lot easier to sing a song that you care about the lyrics of at a poetry reading than it is to read a poem in a rowdy pub where you're playing the music, because nobody's listening in the pub, whereas everybody's listening at the reading. I would imagine that would be true. That's, that is so interesting. So I love the fact that, that you have a love for the blues. 
as an English poet, that seems a little bit like on opposite ends of the spectrum, but I love the yeah. fact that you have that as one of the colors on your in your palette. I find that very interesting. Well, absolutely. I mean, the blues, of course, is a great poetic form. And it was a, a lot of the early blues masters were hardly literate, but they could summon up these wonderful lines. And in this classic 12-bar blues where you sing a line and repeat it, you can actually be composing the line even as you sing it, the next one. Um, but, of course, you'll understand that it's not that odd in that I'm an Englishman of a certain generation. And, of course, the Brits... Love the blues. The early Rolling Stones, you know, Manfred Led Mann, um, Yardbirds, they all tuned in to kind of John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and, um, you know, and that early Chicago electric blues. So those guys came over, you know, they all going to, and there was a kind of blues explosion in Britain, which of course then produced the Stones and them. And then they came over and, and weirdly brought the blues back to America via British bands. I mean, right. you know, when the Stones, the Muddy Water was like a god, Muddy Water was like a god here, and the Chess albums, was, so when the Stones went, you know, to actually went down to Chess Records, to, you know, Keith Richard was in absolute awe, is expecting to find some gilded throne on which he would see the demigod Muddy Waters sitting and he'd queue up for an autograph. And Muddy Waters turned out to be the guy in overalls who just finished painting the roof of chess right. studios and just wandered in, you know, and he was kind of making a buck wow. by doing handiwork as well. Whereas the blues, the Brits thought this man is a genius. And I'm very glad that because of the stones mainly, but others as well, people like Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker and even BB King and mm -hmm. later Buddy Guy and J J Junior Walter and, you know, all of those people kind of got a second breath of wind in their sails and their careers Right. Because they've been discovered by Brits. So I suppose I'm a kind of last gasp of that tradition of Brits who love the blues and kind of plug in and do something with it. Well, it's just fascinating to me as as you talk. I mean, really, the blues were kind of the engine behind the British invasion, what we call the British invasion yeah. of Iraq. So that, that is very interesting. We yeah, I mean, how, Led Zepp, how Led informative. Led Absolutely. Well, early Zeppelin was very much, you know, all of those artists that you talked about were very, very influential uh, in their work. And uh, well, even for the Beatles, to some degree, you know, they were playing some of those those blues covers. Oh, yeah, I think so. You know, and then, of course, you've got a genius like Dylan, who who often uses the blues form musically. Mm -hmm but doesn't use any blues language. He writes a completely new thing in that form. And then in other songs with a different form, he uses blues phrasing. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary. So yeah. I, I think blues is one of the great contributions of obviously of the African-American culture into world culture. Right, and, it, and it's so deeply emotive. It's almost like somebody is, is poor. I mean, literally, we talk about people pouring their hearts out into something, but that's really what it is like. All of the struggle, oh, yeah, the, the angst, the broken heartness that that culture that experienced is poured into their music in a way that up to that point, I don't know, had really been done, at least to my knowledge. It's deeply, deeply emotive music. Uh, so that's mm. so interesting to oh, me yeah. that, that you have a love for the blues. I mean, the, the, the art of sort of movement or exaggeration or just all kinds of things, you know, um, that couplet that goes, you know, I asked my baby for a nickel. 
She gave me a $20 bill. I asked my baby for a nickel. She gave me $20. I asked her for a little drink of liquor. She gave me a whiskey still. I'm, that's genius, you know, in terms of the sheer yes. superabundance of love, you know. <laughs> that's interesting. That's quite a juxtaposition to the. That's a that's an interesting uh, comparison to the to the verse we read by Robert Browning, but it, but yeah. but they express the same thing just in very different forms, and that's yeah. the beauty of words. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So much of the of the Bible is written poetically. Oh, absolutely. Are there certain certain passages, certain books that you find yourself going back to because of? the beauty of the words, the, the word selection, the word choice. And of course, there's um, how it's being written in, in the English form. You talked about the King James Version. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of rich poetry there. Yeah. What is it? Are there certain sections that you find yourself drawn to? Back in the day, before this this really really oppressive secularization of, of the academy, in the 70s, when I was at Cambridge, we were sent a reading list before you could even come up and study English literature at Cambridge, there was a list of books you needed to have read. And right at the top of that list was the King James Bible and the original 1660 Book of Common Prayer. And if you didn't have those under your belt, you couldn't proceed. And um, so I began reading the Bible, although I'd had some of it as a kid, I'd kind of given up my faith in my early teenage years. And I was kind of an agnostic coming up to Cambridge. But in order to study literature, I began reading the Bible. And of course, I was astonished particularly that, you know, by the sheer poetry of it. And at first it was individual books. I mean, the Psalms obviously is a book of poems right at the beginning right. of the, right in the middle, right in the middle of the Bible. I mean, and, and um, it, it's a wonderful kind of prayer diary, really. And it's completely uninhibited poetry. I mean, this goes, if the person is in a rage, they, they express their rage. If they're angry with God or feel he's left them, they say, why are you, where are you? Yeah, my there God, are blues God, in the Psalms. Is, you know, it totally blues in the Psalms. So, and in fact, that stayed with me all my life, the love of the Psalms. After I was actually reading the Psalms when I had a first sense that God was really there. And in fact, when we had lockdown, I went into a very deep dive into the Psalms and I wrote a book called David's Crown, which is 150 linked poems, each responding to one of the Psalms, not translating it, but responding to it. I have that book on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to reading that. So I'm astonished by the poetry of the Psalms. There are other individual, obviously... The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, the book, The Song of Songs, Canticum Canticorum, as it was in that, which is a set of love songs, right in the middle, really sometimes quite explicit love songs, right in the middle of the Bible, you know, again, extraordinary, which was always interpreted mystically, both in the Jewish and in the Christian traditions, as mm-hmm. as the, right. the, 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 the great love of the soul for God and God for the soul of Christ in the garden right. of the soul. He led me into his banqueting house and his banner over me is love and all the half of the lyrics of all the love poems you've ever read mm. are straight from from uh, the song of songs the beloved is compared to a rose the rose of sharon and then again to a lily the lily of the valley you know um so uh you know stay me with flagons comfort me with cider for i am sick of love the opening line let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for the love thy love is sweeter than wine you know so there's all of that but i'll tell you what really moves me about the poetry of the bible now is the way in a really long beautiful poem there's things which are lovely early on which are then alluded to again or referenced again later and they become even more beautiful because in the second reference you realize what the early thing was really all about 
it kind of comes into a focus of meaning. And that is the effect that reading the New Testament has when you've already read the Old Testament. The New Testament itself kind of rereads the Old Testament. So, you know, you read in the Old Testament that there's a strange figure emerges out of nowhere and who we, we esteemed him, he's a servant. He says he's been hidden in the palm of God's hand and now he's seen. And he says we esteemed him stricken and despised, struck off. He had no form. But the, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, f by his stripes we are healed. You know, he was wounded for our transgressions. When you're reading that, the first you're like, who is this? This is pretty strange. And then you read the New Testament. You really see, oh, my goodness, this is Christ. This was always about Jesus. Jesus comes in, you know. And then when you read Psalm 22 and you think, boy, this guy is in real trouble here, this psalmist. Why is there a book in the Bible that starts? Why is there a poem in the Bible that starts? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me and art so far off? And then you hear that very psalm on the lips of Jesus. So that experience is magical. and It's a purely poetic experience. And there's actually a bit in the New Testament that tells you that that's the point, that you should have this experience, which is the road to Emmaus, where the guys are walking along and they're really downcast because they had been reading the Bible one way, thinking if somebody is the Messiah, then all good stuff will happen and nothing bad will happen to them. And they've seen Jesus crucified and Jesus himself comes up to them and they don't recognize him. And he, he says, why are you so upset? He says, well, are you the only person who doesn't know this? We had hoped that he would have been the redeemer of Israel. But obviously, like, they crucified him, so we backed the wrong horse. That's what they're saying. And then he says, oh, foolish man, foolish and slow of heart to believe. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer? And then it tells you, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, i.e. the whole Bible as they had it then, he showed them all the places that were about him. And there's a thrill of recognition. They say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scripture? So for me, the real poetry of the Bible happens when when the New Testament releases or unleashes or reveals the true meaning of all the poetry in the Old Testament. It's that moment of uncovering, unveiling of revelation mm. in, in the in the truest sense. Mm. So that's that's it's very exactly well the said. Sense of that, yes. And I think too, you know, you look at some of the best storytellers, well I even think of in every corner sing and how right at the end you even have a way of bringing it all together. And I love when you get to the end of something and it really changes the way that you've, that you've looked at everything you've just encountered. And I think the Bible does yeah. that as well. Interesting. Well, thank you for noticing that because that's exactly what I'm trying to do in, in every, and indeed in all those little Poets Corner essays, I want to delight you with something and describe something simply as it is. But all the time I have in mind that it can open up into an emblem, that it can show another meaning. Right. And then just at the end of the thing, you turn around and revisit it and then open it up for you and say, well, isn't, isn't our faith a bit like that? Or isn't the church a bit like that? Or isn't, you know, yeah. And my hope is you'll go back to the beginning and say, Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's uh, <laughs> right. that moment of recognition. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I mean, it's quite a challenge, you know, I've been writing that. It's a weekly column on the back page of the Church Times. And I, I had some, you know, apprehension taking it on because the previous incumbent, the guy that used to write that, wasn't called Poets the Corner then, it was called The Wormingford, was a guy called Ronald Blythe. 
who is a major literary figure in England. He's probably the great agrarian writer of England. Um, wow. He's died, okay. died now, but he, he, he lived in a little village and he wrote beautiful observations of the way the countryside had changed over the course of his lifetime. But again, the observations was a Christian and the observations often just opened out into emblem. And, um, you know, so Ronnie Blythe, so when the editor wrote to me and said, well, would you like to try out as his successor, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, it's a pair of shoes to fill. But I've been doing it now for five <laughs> years in my own kind of distinct style. But it is, I'm on, it is without remission, you know. I mean, even on holidays, I produce my five or 600 words wow. every week without fail. Uh, even if I'm in a mid-Atlantic flight, you know, it has to be done. But in a way, that's actually quite a good discipline for a writer because it's easy to just wander off and, you know, get carried away with something else so i think the fact that i have to put pen to paper once a week whatever i do whatever else yeah. i'm working on has been quite helpful that's interesting who did you say was the author of the the column previous ronald blythe b-l-y-t-h-e did he write the cotswold parables he he certainly i think he's written about the cotswolds though he mainly writes about suffolk but he wrote his most famous book probably is called Aikenfield, which was made into a film. Um, and it's about, it's sort of set in the kind of just after the Second World War. And it's about the jobs changing, the, the agriculture becoming agribusiness and the, the factories oh, okay. taking over from the, the yeah. tractors, taking over from the horses and everything. I'm so curious. What do you think people would be surprised to to learn about you have obviously i was a little surprised at how much you love the blues i think that was pretty fascinating but what do you think people would be surprised to find out about you i suppose the people who think of me as a sort of kind of archetypal english professor might find it strange that i you know i ride a motorcycle and play in a sort of rock blues band um <laughs> and um that is a kind of, I mean, the other thing I, I, I love to do is mess about in boats, as Ratty would say in Wind in the Willows. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, an aficionado of um, what we call real ale in England, you know, proper wow. beer that's still alive and hasn't been sort of pasteurized and gassed to death. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of those sorts of things. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've got, I've got quite a sense of, I mean, I sometimes various friends of mine have said I ought to do a book of, of comical verse, you know, and uh, just, just oh. sort of, you know, yeah. slightly lighter, which I, I, I might do sometime. I used to write sort of um, satiric, you know, blues songs or topical blues songs. You know, I'd be at a party and I'd make up a verse about everybody in the room kind of thing, you know, because <laughs> I could just sort of um, do that. Um, so I don't know. Um, uh, what what people would find surprising, but the, I suppose my Christian readership might find it surprising that I still read and get something from they might authors that they might think are despairing and secular, and what's the point of them? So people like Samuel Beckett, I think Samuel Beckett is a great writer, and I make it my business to read books by despairing atheists. Partly mm -hmm. because I think, you know, if you're an atheist and you're despairing, that's a good sign because, you know, it shows you that yeah. the atheism isn't satisfying some deep yearning in you, what C.S. Lewis called the yearning for the far-off country. I think the church mustn't become a kind of inward-looking and self-perpetuating silo. I think Agreed. we've been sent sent out into the world with good news. But you can't 
share the good news unless you're really prepared to listen at depth to what your neighbour thinks is the bad news. And that might include listening to what they think is the bad news about Christianity and the bad news about you. You've got to hear all that before you have a right to speak, I think. I agree. Well, Malcolm, I know you've got to get on with your day, and I want to tell you how much I have enjoyed our conversation. I'm very grateful for your time. And as somebody who is new to your work, I have so much yet to explore, many books to read, and I'm looking forward very thoroughly to to diving more deeply into your collection of works. So thank you for sharing your gift with everybody, and thank you for sharing your time with me. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. And for everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation with author, poet, priest, musician, professor, Malcolm Guide, please share this with others so others can hear these great conversations. So remember, keep your bags packed and join us on our next journey to the stage. And that is a wrap.